Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Will Pomeranz, and I'm Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute. And I would like to welcome everyone to the Kennan Institute's Facebook Live conversation. Today, I am joined by Andrea Kendall-Taylor, Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, for, for a New American Security. Andrea is an expert on Russia, transatlantic relations, and authoritarian regimes which is great because that's the subject that we're going to be discussing today. Uh, before we get started, uh, please note that you can submit questions for me and Andre, Andre, Andrea to answer by commenting on the Facebook live stream or by sending them by email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org. Additionally, please uh, be sure to follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at Kennan Institute. And now uh, we're gonna begin a conversation between Andrea and myself and in about 15 minutes, we'll start answering your questions. So my opening question is, how is Russia's unique brand of authoritarianism different from other regimes? Andrea. Well, thanks for having me. First of all, Will, it's great to be here with you. Um, and I guess I maybe even push back a little bit on this idea that Russian authoritarianism is unique. Um, of course, there are things that are unique to Russia. But when you look at Russia in a comparative perspective, and my background is in comparative politics, um, you see that the regime that Putin has created over the last 20 years is really not so different than many highly personalized authoritarian regimes. Uh, and the logic of the system that he has created really follows the logic we see in other personalist autocracies. Um, so then the question is, well, then what is that logic? And I think first and foremost, in Russia, Power is concentrated in the hands of an individual, and that is Mr. Vladimir Putin. Um, it's not a consensus-based system like you see in some other authoritarian regimes, maybe a single party regime where you have a Politburo or a military regime where a junta has a, a say in decisions or even in a monarchy where the royal family would weigh in. But here in Russia, on all decisions of consequence, um, Putin is the primary decider. He is the decider. And so I think that means that a defining feature of Russian authoritarianism is the absence of any meaningful constraints on Putin's power. He's hollowed out all of the institutions. Of course, they're there, they exist, um, but they don't function in the way that those institutions function in democracies. And he sidelined most potential rivals to his power. Um, so while Putin does enjoy a good amount of popular support, his security in office really stems from the fact that um, he has eliminated all potential and viable alternatives to him. Um, I would say another defining characteristic of Russian uh, authoritarianism is that it's in large part based on patronage or the distribution of the perks of power. Uh, in that Russian system, loyalty is priv uh, pri privileged over competence. Um, and where the people who matter can be boiled down to just a very small group around Putin. And most of these people have long-standing ties to Putin himself, often um, from his days in St. Peter Petersburg or from the security services. And so this really is a system that benefits just a small group of elites at the top. Um, it's not really a system that benefits ordinary Russians. And I guess then the final characteristic, and again, it's common across most personalist dictatorships, is that it's defined by repression. Um, in the earlier years that Putin was in power, he derived support um, from additional sources, 
You know, he helped deliver Russia from the chaos of the 1990s. He contained the insurgency in the North Caucasus. Oil prices were high, which really uh, facilitated his ability to, dis to dole out that patronage. Uh, in 2014, he, he illegally annexed his Crimea and that boosted his popular support. But I would say that most of those past pillars have now eroded and Putin really is left increasingly reliant on repression. And I, I just want to note too that this repression also includes Putin's proclivity to use threats. Real or perceived, they might be internal or external, primarily the United States, but Putin searches out enemies to boost support for his strongman tactics. Um, so I think that, that's kind of it in a nutshell. I would boil it down. It's a highly personalized authoritarian system. There's no real constraints on executive power. It's based on patronage. It doesn't work for ordinary Russians. And it's reliant on repression and the perception of kind of, in, of infinite enemies. Yes, that, that, that is an excellent summary, uh, Andrea. And um, I'll just add a few points that from a legal standpoint, uh, what's fascinating about Russian history and Russian law uh, is that rulers, the personal ruler, rules by decree. In other words, his, his or her rule becomes law. And that is also a defining characteristic, not just of the present day legal system, but throughout Russian history. There only have been two examples, uh, and, not, and they were not very long, where an elected legislature challenged, on, at least on a general level, uh, the autocratic power of the leader. And that was with the Duma, a very imperfect institution. Um, and I would say the period between 1991 and 2000. Yeltsin really wasn't in control of the legislature, and the legislature actually had a very big impact on what Yeltsin could or could not do. Um, those are really the only two times in Russia where a leader has really felt themselves constrained. Um, and they were both imperfect institutions and clearly they didn't become consolidated institutions because both kind of went away and left in its wake a return of autocratic and authoritarian rulers. Um, I should add also that I think the amendments to the Constitution play into your arguments as well. That um, he, President Putin did not change articles, chapters one and two of the Constitution, because by law he would have to call a con constitutional assembly to do so. And that was the last thing Putin wanted to do. So he just stuck all his amendments in chapters three through eight, um, thereby undermining the governmental system and the rights and liberties of Russians. Uh, but he did that by simply going around and making an end run around these constitutional requirements. Um, and of course has not been held accountable to those amendments as well. Obviously, as we were talking beforehand, uh, there's still the question of the plebiscite and when that will occur so that he'll, his coronation will be complete. Uh, but I don't anticipate that that would get into the way. Um, and the last point I'll just make is you talked about Putin and the, and, and the 1990s and how Russians remember the 1990s. Uh, I think Putin has been running against the 1990s ever since he became president. And it was, has been a very successful strategy for two decades. Um, but the 1990s now are a long time ago and everything that was 
they tried to create in the 1990s is something that Putin needs today. He needs greater private enterprise. He needs independent regional institutions. Uh, everything that imperfect as they were, that was, was an attempt to break the authoritarian tradition that has lasted for three centuries and beyond. And so Putin, um, ironically, has enjoyed a 20-year run running against the reforms of the 1990s, yet uh, comes uh, the coronavirus. Uh, those are the reforms that he would need to make in order to handle the crisis. So the next question that, that I, I have for you is uh, a question of the internet. And what role does the internet play in Putin's authoritarian uh, toolbox? Yeah, that's a great question. And I've done some work on digital dictatorship and trying to really think through and understand the relationship between technology and contemporary authoritarianism. And Russia is an interesting case um, in, in many ways because it's so different than China, um, which has much more kind of capacity and resources to throw at the problem. And I think, you know, in, in, we've been drawing a lot of lessons from the China case and looking at that and what's possible for authoritarian leaders um, and their ability to use technology to uh, support uh, and increase the resilience of their regimes. But in Russia, it looks a lot different. And that's in large part because historically the internet has been much more free and open. Even while President Putin was kind of consolidating power and increasing um, repression in other domains, the internet for a very long time had remained a relatively free and open place where Russians could access alternative information and express preferences and other things. And so um, unlike the case of China, where Xi Jinping has you know, imposed the, the Great Firewall um, and successfully uh, co-opted that space, I think it's still a little bit of a thorn in the Kremlin side, and they probably look at Xi Jinping with a little bit of envy about what they've be, been able to create there. there. Um, that said, it looks like Putin is certainly learning and watching from the successes that the Chinese Communist Party is having, controlling that online sphere, and is increasingly trying to move in that direction. They had the sovereign internet law, which is trying to make it possible to uh, shut off Russia from the outside internet should they need to. Um, but of course, there's still a lot of questions about whether or not they have the capacity to do that. Um, so, I, you know, I, but I do think this area um, of the internet and the role that technology will play in Putin's regime is an increasingly interesting space to watch. Um, because I, you know, in all of the work that we did, we looked again from a comparative perspective and we found that those authoritarian regimes that are able to use digital repression, controlling the internet, controlling narratives inside the country, using some forms of surveillance online, uh, digital repression actually increased the durability of authoritarian regimes. And it's a tool that autocrats are able to use now to reduce their risk of protest. Um, and so I think Putin is very well aware of that. Um, he recognizes the um, gains that he could accrue from being able to bring that space under greater state control. And I, I mean, I look at things like the appointment of Prime Minister Mishustin, who kind of, of course, coming from the tax agency, but he's kind of a, a technocrat with a background in technology. He's done really great things to use technology to increase the tax revenue collection of, uh, in Russia. And so you wonder if Putin sees in him someone who understands how to use technology to solve difficult problems. 
And so whether or not that's a harbinger of, you know, a regime that does see technology as uh, giving them another lever in their efforts to try to maintain control. Yes, no, I, I agree with that. And I, I've followed uh, certain legislation that has been passed on the internet, uh, most lo notably dealing with extremist uh, speech on the internet. And, and the fact that simply reposting a picture from the Holocaust could event possibly land you in criminal prosecution. So he has tried to crack down on the internet. But I guess the, the interesting thing is, I, 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 I realize that Putin is autocratic and authoritarian, but is it a poorly organized authoritarian state? I mean, that's you, you, what you were saying, is that he can't get to China's level, at least not yet. And, you know, there has been these outposts of independent media that he seems to allow. Um, up until about two months ago, um, Vietnamese was an important independent newspaper. Yep. Uh, and, and I'm sure all the all, all people who follow the Russian intelligentsia enjoyed reading the Vietnamese uh, uh, and other newspapers like that. So I think it's very interesting is that Putin, although consistently moving in this more autocratic authoritarian tradition, has historically tried to create a safety valve so that they, he could allow islands of free speech as long as they didn't have any impact, essentially. That if, you know, 10,000 people wanted to protest, maybe they could, but he would, he would never let them become 100,000 people. And so the question is, is, especially in comparison to the China issue, is Russia simply just a poorly organized authoritarian country? Uh, I, I recall that uh, Richard Pipes described the Tsar's regime as a police, a prototype of a police regime, but one that was very poorly organized. Um, and there were lots of very interesting outlets in Tsarist Russia that suggest that an autocratic state really wasn't un, un, in control. So what do you think in terms of, of Putin's authoritarianism? Is it, is it successful? Um, is it on par with other authoritarian countries? Um, or is he really in the same league, but maybe in the second division? That's the, well, that's the million dollar question. And I think for those of us who study authoritarian regimes, um, it's the hardest question to answer because regimes that looked stable for a very long time can unravel in the course of days. I mean, I think that was the lesson of the Arab uh, the Arab Spring, in countries even like Libya, you know, it looked like for a while that Qaddafi had a very firm hold on power in part because of the repressive capabilities of the regime. And then in a matter of days, those things un are unravel very quickly. And so, I mean, there's, there's, President Putin has, um, I think so far, it's fair to say, a fairly strong hold on power. He has a lot of tools in his toolbox that support his ability to do what he does. First and foremost, I think a fairly strong and capable and loyal security services. Of course, they're not the Chinese Communist Party. They don't have the manpower to do the kind of boots on the ground surveillance that the Chinese Communist Party is able to do. But I think that this is another open question. Um, you know, what will surveillance um, enable the regime to do? I mean, this is a huge change when you look comparatively 
at authoritarian regimes. It used to be that building a repressive capability required tremendous amounts of resources, building up a whole cadre of security uh, actors who are loyal um, and able to carry out repression. Um, but now I think surveillance and some of the digital repression is changing that because you can now import a lot of this technology. Of course, Russia's building some of it on its own, but we see increasing ties between Russia and China in the technology space, working with Huawei, working with China for some of the other cameras that are going up across um, Moscow and other parts of the country. So it is possible that the regime may be able to import some of this capability and then what that would do is it allows the regime to more surgically identify opponents. Um, and then you can um, target your repression in a very focused way so that you're not using indiscriminate repression that can trigger backlash. So, you know, at this point, it's just, it's hard to, I think it's always hard to assess the stability of an authoritarian regime. The Putin, you know, lots of people will argue that the Putin regime is quite brittle. Um, and of course it has vulnerabilities. These things can unwind very quickly. Um, but for now, it does look like with Putin's control over the media, the loyal, loyalty of the security services, that, that his control is fairly, um, fairly tight. But that said, I just want to point out that with the coronavirus, which we haven't talked about, um, I would say that Putin's hold on power is probably less secure today than it was even six months ago. And as we were talking about before we went on the air, it's this idea of a confluence of a number of different challenges that will make it increasingly hard for Putin to navigate this. So you have the, the coronavirus crisis. You had, at the same time, the oil production conflict with Saudi Arabia. This is going to really hurt the Russian economy. Um, and so, and on top of that, add into the equation whether, you know, Putin's efforts to try to restart his term limits, which is always the most vulnerable moment for any authoritarian regime. And so you bring all that together. And of course, um, you know, I think that's creating, that will create significant challenges for Putin moving forward. Yes, and, and I'm gonna to go to the questions now, but to follow up on just one point. Yes, he, Putin has never had to resort to re mass repression. Selective prosecution has worked just as well. Yeah. And Khodorkovsky prosecution sent the message to the oligarchs. Uh, the Bolotnia Square and other prosecutions sent messages to civil society. Uh, he has not had to resort to mass repression. He has simply had to draw a line in the sand, punish a few people, and people have fallen in line after that. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, and also a key difference with the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, he's built a legal system that he's able to weaponize in that way. Um, and that's right. been so far a really effective way of, of maintaining that control. Okay, so we're going to go to some questions here. Uh, the first one is from Matt Airlocker, who asks, how does Russia utilize non-state actors to further its security goals around the world? Yep, I think we see lots of examples of that with the Wagner Group working in Syria and in parts of Africa and Libya, Madagascar and other places. Um, so that has been an important extension of the, of the regime. And I think in, in Putin's Russia, he views the elite and some of these important actors as just an extension of the state. Um, they are kind of semi-autonomous actors, but there is that agreement, I think, between them that they understand that they are only there because Putin allows them to be. And then the trade-off is that Putin is able to use them when he needs 
to amplify and extend the reach of the state. So those, they have been key actors, um, particularly, as I mentioned, in Syria, the Wagner Group on the ground there. Um, it's heating up a bit in Libya um, with you know, Wagner Group present there, but in a number of different places. Yes, and, and, the, and the interesting thing is he's really been able to do it on the cheap. Exactly. Without huge investments. And so the question again is today, uh, is that still viable? Uh, I mean, the, the decision to kind of semi-withdraw from Venezuela, for example, uh, is, shows, shows that they might be feeling some financial heat uh, in terms of their global ambitions. Um, but uh, at the same time, uh, he's still sitting on $600 billion in hard currency reserves, and he's been very clever in the sense that he hasn't invested huge amounts of, of money to interfere and to extend, extend Russia's reach abroad. Um, second question from Andrew Sarkovsky asks, uh, how does demography interact with authoritarianism and are younger populations more likely to challenge it? That's a great question. And I, I, I think, in, at least in my mind, kind of getting a pulse and understanding the preferences and the views and attitudes of a younger generation of Russians is one of the places where I think we have less insight uh, into kind of the stability of, of, the, of the regime. When you look broadly at some of the comparative literature on the role of demography, we know that large youth bulge populations, particularly when they're highly educated and when there's high levels of unemployment, that's what we see in um, the Middle East and North Africa, in places like Central Asia, that that can be a real catalyst for change but that's not what we've got in Russia, where it's a declining population. We don't have that youth bulge dynamic. So it's unlikely in my mind that you're gonna get that groundswell from the younger generation uh, of Russians. Um, I think another way that demography plays a really important role is also um, out migration. And so Russia also has a really significant brain drain problem. And there is also comparative research that shows that that can also be a source of resilience uh, in authoritarian regimes. When you're younger, more educated, kind of more asp aspirational um, parts of your public are able to leave the country, it gets rid of um, a, a cohort that might be more active in agitating for change within the country. So in Russia, both of those things, I think, um, particularly when you look in a comparative perspective, are um, contribute to stability in Russia because you don't have a large youth bulge population and you have a fairly significant out-migration and a, this brain drain issue that, that does kind of serve as a pressure valve release um, in terms of the pressure, the bottom-up pressure on the regime. Right, and, and just to add, the, the fastest growing part of the population is of course the, um, uh, the generation that is retired and the pensioners. And uh, even though Putin has changed the pension age and raised it, uh, the interesting thing about people who are uh, uh, older and rely on the state for receiving money uh, is that they're far less likely to take the streets. Uh, they simply want their pensions to be paid. And that's what Putin does. He makes sure that he pays the pensions. Uh, and in fact, one of the amendments to the constitution that just passed the Duma is that they're going to index pay pensions. So he's going to be satisfying the crucial contingent of his electorate. And so I think it's gonna be much harder 
uh, to see a, a national revolt when he is making an effort to raise the pensions and to pay the pensions on time. Uh, that I think is, again, a, a, a tactical move that Putin has made, but it will help him in terms of sustaining his uh, popularity uh, because other politicians will don't have the track record of actually paying pensions and upholding these, the, the support for Russia's uh, elderly population. And, but the, I guess the only other thing I would say is not to like to be so status quo. I mean, when you do look at the <coughs> protests Bolotnaya Square and the protests in Moscow that we saw over the summer, um, a lot there is a large uh, proportion of the people who turn out that are among the younger generation. So they are there, and when you think about it, that President Putin has now been there for 20 years. There is now this generation of Russians who have only lived under one leader. Um, and so I would say, again, you know, understanding and trying to gauge what the preferences of that cohort um, are is going to be really important in understanding the stability dynamics of that regime, um, because it could be that that generation does grow tired of only knowing one person and want something else. So again, I think reaching out to that generation and, and, and being able to work with that younger generation of Russians to try to highlight kind of the parasitic nature of the, of the, of the Russian regime um, can be a catalyst for change, and I don't think we should underestimate that. Okay, uh, the next question comes from, from uh, Cindy Garcia, uh, Garcia, who asks, can you comment on how Russia is flipping terms like sovereignty and non-intervention on their head in order to legitimize their authoritarian policies and what this looks like in practice? Yes, so um, I would say when we look at kind of the, the challenge that Russia poses to democracy worldwide, um, Russia's efforts to challenge some of these, the international norms. So obviously they're doing it through active means like violating international law when they illegally annex Crimea. So they're doing it kind of overtly in that way. But there is another kind of more insidious um, approach that I think Russia um, is taking, which is trying to flip some of these norms and standards, rewriting the rules of the game in ways that would support um, Russian authoritarianism. Um, we see increasingly that Russia is working in conjunction with China on, on trying to rewrite these norms and standards. So in, in many cases, we're seeing in a growing alignment between the interests and the efforts of, the Russian of, the Ru of Russia and the Chinese Communist Party. And it is on this issue of sovereignty and non-interference in um, other in, within in other countries that both of both Russia and China are very actively pushing in multilateral institutions like the UN in their own regional organizations like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And so this is an area where I think the United States working with allies and partners is going to need to really need to prioritize and focus on pushing back on those efforts. And unfortunately, the United States in many ways is abdicating some of that responsibility. Think about in the wake of the coronavirus with the World Health Organization, um, the Trump administration is withdrawing funding um, for that organization and rather than leaning in and trying to push back on the way that both Russia and China together are trying to use these institutions to change norms and standards and rewrite the rules of the game. So I think that's a critical battlefield 
Um, and the United States, along with allies and partners, need to show up in places like the UN. We need to be the people who are leaning forward and talking about um, internet freedom and the appropriate use of surveillance and cyber law and norms in many of these emerging domains, um, because that is a key area where I think Russia is trying to undermine um, and weaken liberal democracy. Yes. Um Russia has been playing the sovereignty card for centuries, as it were. Uh, but what I think was unexpected was the, uh, the, was the decision both by the United States and the, and the United Kingdom, who had done nothing but benefit from globalization and greater integration, to both of them play the sovereignty card at the same time as well. So I think you're absolutely right to kind of emphasize this notion of sovereignty, because once you're emphasizing sovereignty, you're playing on Vladimir Putin's playing field. And it's uh, always sovereignty with an asterisk though, right? Because that doesn't mm -hmm. apply to states uh, in the former Soviet Union or along Russia's periphery. Okay, so I, I've just been given the one minute warning. So I'm just gonna throw this one question out at, uh, and you, you can give a brief response. What risk real and perceived does Khodorkovsky present to the Putin administration? Well, it's always hard to tell about the role of kind of diaspora and the ability of those actors to foment change inside the countries that they've left. I mean, I think that the risk and the, the one thing that Putin has done really well is to discredit outside voices. So often if the United States is getting involved, if some of these individuals from the United Kingdom, Khodorkovsky and others are getting involved, um, it enables Putin to discredit their efforts as you know, fifth columnists and um, provocateurs. It's a tried and true tactic that we see not just in Russia, but in authoritarian regimes across the globe. And so it's really difficult, I would say, outside actors in the United States included, has to be really careful about how they engage to build up and strengthen opposition in Russia, um, because we don't want to overplay our hand and then, um, you know, inadvertently discredit those actors inside Russia. Well, thank you so much, Andrea. Uh, I apologize, we still have some questions in the queue, but uh, time is up. And so I wanna thank you for our discussion. Uh, and I want to uh, just announce that we're going to be continue to have these Facebook Live conversations. So we'll be sending additional notices and we look forward to everyone's participation as well. So thank you, Andrea, thank you for participating. Thanks and for having me.